Welcome to the Healing Trauma Podcast, a space for those who are healing from complex and developmental trauma. Introducing your host, Monique Coven, a certified trauma recovery coach, survivor, and thriver. The intent of the podcast is to provide helpful information with insight that can validate, encourage, and support you on your healing journey. You're going to hear stories from other survivors and trauma experts, featuring therapists, coaches, and practitioners. We will open up the conversation on effective trauma healing modalities, practices, and tools. If you are interested in trauma recovery coaching, as well as recommended books and healing resources, head over to www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. And now, here is your host, Monique Coven. Welcome back, everyone. So today I'm joined with Emma Stevens, and Emma is the author of her memoir, which is called The Gathering Place. And it's a book about her own journey of being a U.S. domestic adoptee from birth and her experiences with surviving layers of trauma that she says put her on multiple journeys. She developed the inner strength and courage to surmount the many struggles she faced. And we're going to talk about that. Her traumas were born from being an adoptee who struggled with being forced to wear an impossible mask of playing the art of the good adopted child. She believes strongly in adoptees finding their voice and discovering their truth to have a solid sense of self and to reclaim their identities. Through telling her story, Emma is dedicated to help redefine the narrative of adoption to include the entire complex truth. I hope you enjoy this episode with Emma and myself. Hi, Emma. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. I read your book, uh, The Gathering Place, and I was very interested in it because I know and I've heard from people that adoption or being an adoptee um, is is early trauma, can be early trauma. And I have no experience with that. I don't even have any friends, to be honest, who are close friends who are adopted. So I haven't really had uh, any kind of experience with that. So I was interested in reading your book, which I loved. Um, You talked about your experience and how it impacted you, but it it really made me think about things I never thought about and that is like how how that kind of severing with your birth mom can have an, a total impact on your life. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about about that, about your experience with that. And I don't really know where you want to start, but maybe give us a little a little um, idea of of your experience. Absolutely. Um, I guess I will start with. 
what adoptees and adoptee land know to be the primal wound. And it was a uh, phrase that was coined by Nancy Verrier, and she wrote the book, The Primal Wound. And what it is talking about, and actually she's an adoptive mother herself, and she was uh, really trying to help her adoptive daughter. And she loved her daughter so much, but she could tell there were certain issues that she couldn't help her daughter with. And her daughter was unable to express what her anxiety or trauma was. So as she dug deeper, she realized that um, the primal wound means the severing of the birth mother and the infant, um, which is a trauma that happens so early. It's the first thing that we know, and we have no sense of self. The baby has no sense of self at that point. So they don't have anything to draw on any strength or, or any self at all. And so that severing or being pulled by the root from everything the infant has ever known is very traumatizing. And it's, um, it's shocking for the baby. And they're going to go through, um, I've heard that babies either cry all the time, or they just don't cry at all. And that's all, you know, either the baby's in shock, or they're trying to get their needs met. And then when they go to their adoptive moms and, and fathers, uh, they're in a strange house that doesn't smell right, doesn't look right, doesn't feel right. They just know innately that what they've always known for nine months has been taken. And so they're reacting in their own ways of maybe they're not attaching to their new caregivers. Uh, maybe the caregiver, the new mom doesn't know how to hold the baby. And let's say the baby arches its back and cries and then that makes the adoptive mother say, oh, this baby doesn't like me. Uh -huh. It's really the baby expressing that, hey, I don't know where I am. And that's kind of a, in a nutshell, the, the primal wound is something that an infant, it changes us physiological. And it's a wound that I don't say that you can never recover from, but it is something to grow around. If you think of it as a scab or a scar, you have to grow around that, that wound in order to try to get on a healthier path. And some of us don't ever get there. And some of us do. And that's a long story of, of how that all plays out too. But so that's the primal wound. <laughs> so what about if you're adopted into a home that is, um, where you know the, the 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 caregiver is attuned will you still see trauma will there still be trauma from this severing that you're talking about even if they go into a home that let's say is fairly attuned yes they will still have trauma but the good news is that the um the educated and researched adoptive mom and parents will be well ahead of the game and trying to tend to the needs of this adopted baby, because I'll realize when you try to graft on a baby that's from a different family onto your tree, there are going to be certain issues that they're going to deal with, you're going to deal with. And the sooner you can be aware of that, the more helpful you can be for them. But just loving your child is not going to be enough. I mean, hopefully it'll be enough for an adoptive parent to get themselves educated about the special needs that are going to be there. Um, and when they see acting out issues that could be related to the adoption, um, they'll be able to help that child the best way they know how. 
but there is going to still be trauma. That's so interesting because that's, um, that's something that personally I'd never seen anything written about. Well, I'm talking like 10 years ago, but I'm starting to see a lot these days. So it is becoming much more talked about and uh, hopefully that there, there, there is some training or some kind of, um, you know, explanation or education to the uh, adoptive parents on, 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 on what to expect or yeah, some of the issues. And that's what, yeah, exactly. The adoptees in what we call adoptee land, and there's a lot of us and none of us knew each other were out there. We all thought we were the only ones growing up, but now that we have social media, we've all connected and we have a huge community that is really healing each other. It's fantastic to, to get plugged in. And um, the more that we speak out and tell our stories, the more we can say the complexities of adoption, that the narrative has always been, it's beautiful, there's you know, magic and well, okay, yes, that can be there too, but it's on a spectrum, just like everything else in life, yeah. that there's all these different gray areas that we can't deny the, the trauma from the get-go and all the things that we need to be aware of. So the more that adoptees can speak out and more people listen, and that's why I'm so excited to be on your podcast, because um, we just, as adoptees, want people to to hear from the people that experienced it, that have the life experience of being an adoptee is not just that day I was relinquished. It'll be until the day I die. And that's all I know is being adopted. It's not a one-time only thing. It's kind of like a trauma that you keep reprocessing as you go through life because new things happen. You have a baby and you re-question everything or you get married, you re-question everything. So it's always evolving. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your your story or, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Um, I, I absolutely love my story. I won't be shy and say I don't because oh, it, it feels like I'm on a mountaintop with just, you know, in the rain saying, this is my truth. And this oh. is my true self. And growing up, I never could be oh. my true self. And it was a death, to be honest with you, because I had to be, I had to submit to my parents to be the child they thought and wanted me to be. And if I wasn't that, then I felt that I might be rehomed. Oh. And that happens because there are expectations of buying or purchasing a child. And if they don't fit the need that they are purchased for, then it's well, okay, we'll just try another one. And that didn't happen to me, but I always had that fear. Mm-hmm. And it was always that abandonment fear of it ruled my life. And when I wrote my book, I was able to, it was so therapeutic for me because I was able to step back and see how adoption has colored my entire life. Every choice I've ever made, every decision, every relationship, um, it just all is connected. There was nothing, there was no tangent of, oh, I just went over there for a while. Uh Uh-uh, it's all related. And that book, when I wrote it, um, I had just entered EMDR as a modality in my therapy sessions. And the first thing my counselor said And she's a fantastic certified EMDR specialist. 
She said, I want you to think of a safe place of where you can um, talk to all your parts and all are welcome. Every part, there's no one that's not welcome. And I thought, I had this image of an oak tree on a hill with grass and birds, and it was just beautiful. And I said, okay, I've got that image. And I actually had a photograph of that image. And I had tried to write my story previously, but it read more like a diary. And I'd written it several times. And then when I had that idea in EMDR of that safe place, it just came to life and it just burst out of me. And it took me less than a year to write it and actually to get it published. I I self-published through Amazon because I was too impatient to do anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so you're saying that what really helped was when you started to see that safe place. Um, I'm interested in that. Um, What did the safe place represent for you? All those parts of me that I had told at a very young age, it's not safe here. You need to go somewhere else. I'll come back and get you Uh when things are safe. But I forgot to do that later in life. Uh And so all my actions, my implicit, uh, you know, pre-verbal thoughts and memories were guiding every, they were driving my bus. Uh And I was Uh making not all bad choices, but there were enough until um, something very dramatic happened in my life that brought me to my knees. And I was able to just dismantle everything and um, start to see things in a whole new, new light. And I'm very grateful for that situation, even though um, it was traumatic in and of itself, but I'm so happy it happened or else I wouldn't be talking to Monique right now. (laughs) Yeah, I, I really, um, I really appreciate what you're saying about the parts and um, how we had to really relinquish. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, maybe a curious little girl with a big mouth or, you know, um, maybe a fearful, a really fearful one that uh, we just, we weren't allowed to express. So, you know, that got shut off and, and just realizing too that, yes, what happens is that we start to see life through these different lenses from different ages and respond to life in that way when we, when it's all like kind of not conscious. So I, I love that, that gathering place where I guess you gathered and you met and you welcomed these, these different parts that had to, that had to go away. And I think, you know, the audience can really relate to uh, when parents or caregivers expect a certain, a certain, a certain behavior or certain personality traits. And we, we feel like we have to be and being adopted, like, you know, having that fear of abandonment. I mean, I could imagine there was, that was just such an such an urgency that I cannot be any other way or else I might, I might be relinquished again. Yeah. It was really an unattainable goal Um, to try to fit. I did. I was the adaptable adoptee and became a perfectionist and a people pleaser uh had an overdeveloped sense of responsibility where Uh, every, I took on the sins of everyone. Oh yeah. (laughs) And I thought things that were I was holding things that were not mine to hold. Uh, and until I got a sense of what I was doing, 
um, I was on a path of destruction. And sadly, my brother is no longer with us because that was his demise. He, he never did his interior work to come to terms with his trauma or his ACE score. And um, he died at 60 and his heart just said, I can't do it anymore. And at first, mm. I know it makes me very sad. I dedicated the book to him. Oh, that's, um, that, that's, that's really something. And even just the way you describe it, that it, it sometimes that's what it feels like, uh, living with trauma is that it just gets to a place where it's like, it feels like it's just too much. And that's often where I think you were talking about that before, where then we're like, think something has to change. Trauma recovery is about finding safety. Safety firstly in our bodies, and then in our experience, in relationships with others. And so part of the work that I do as a trauma recovery coach is help you to begin to get unstuck in those responses that are really in the body. As we know, trauma doesn't live in our thoughts or in our cognitions. Yes, our thoughts play a part, but it begins in our somatic experience. Through the coaching experience, I will give you tools and support to help you to begin to move through those responses where you often find yourself stuck. To find out more about my trauma recovering coaching offerings, you can visit my website at www.thehealingtraumapodcast.com. I wanted to ask you about something I think I, I read in your book about um, adoptees and trauma and a, an adoptee operates at a deficit. I wanted to know if you could explain that a little bit. What do you mean they, they operate at a deficit? Um, okay. Well, I know what I'm saying probably applies to all of us as a, the human, human beings it applies but for an adoptee that is relinquished and is severed from the only thing they've ever known is operating at a deficit to, um, number one, they don't have a self to rely on because they're too young. Mm -hmm. And the trauma, the, as we know, the earlier the trauma happens, the more significant it is yeah. and harder to deal with, or at least not saying that it can't be dealt with, but it gets trickier and it gets deeper. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by the deficit is that if it's undetected, which most adoptees trauma is undetected and, un and really denied uh, that, no, you don't have trauma. You have a beautiful life. <laughs> we saved you from an awful life. Wow. So that's what I mean from a deficit that we have a lot more to catch up with um, mm -hmm. to get to a place of, of, what my counselor calls climbing the ladder of health <laughs> and living in green. Mm -hmm. and, and we operate way down below. So it's just a longer climb to the ladder, up the ladder. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And even from a nervous system perspective, you know, spending our time in, I know you know about that because I could see in your book, you talk a lot about that. Um, but, you know, seeing how a lot of us trauma survivors, we spend what Deb Dana calls our home away from home, either in our sympathetic state, you know, anxious and activated and looking for the next threat, um, or just shut down, just disconnected. Mm -hmm. uh, and then 
as we heal, we start to move closer to this place. You called it, did you say green space? Like just this place where we feel more connected, safer. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you talk about a life event, but you said that 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 life event that happened um, actually helped you to get unstuck. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that. I would love to. Um, I came to a do or die fork in the road. It was decision making time. And that is in regards to being an alcoholic. And I was in denial that I had a problem until all of a sudden things happened where I realized I had to agree that, yes, I had a problem. Mm -hmm. And so in the process of getting sober, um, which was, you know, I'm really fast forwarding because that took a lot of effort (laughs) to go through getting sober. And in AA, we call it step one, Mm -hmm. admitting you have a problem. And a lot of people may admit on a certain time, yes, I agree, I have a problem, but they forget about it on, you know, the next week, the next month, the next year, they don't retain. So they have to go back to step one. Uh, But luckily, I was able to continue on through the steps, which were life giving to me, and um, was able to start taking a fearless moral inventory of yourself is what Mm -hmm. they call it for step four and five. And I was able to make amends to other people. And I was able, what the biggest thing for me was to make amends to myself. Yeah. Yeah. And to realize I'd been like cutting pieces of myself off Mm. and to where I was almost going to die if I didn't come to that fork in the road and accept the invitation of my life. And, uh, you know, I often ask, why me? Why did I get out of it? And people like my brother did not. Mm -hmm. Why? And I have to say that I think it's because I accepted the invitation that I was living in a broken story. Mm-hmm. And to borrow words from Ian Cron of his typology podcast is that I needed to write myself a new story and I accepted the invitation to move forward. And when I did that, I started reevaluating everything I thought about adoption, about who I was, about who I thought God was, um, just the whole world around me and slowly start to put the pieces all back together in a way that felt true to me. And it was inclusive. It was no longer us against them, or that doesn't work, or I'm better than, yeah, it was inclusive. Mm. And um, it was just, that's where in AA, you get to step 12. And it's where you start to give back freely what was so freely given to you. Mm. And it's a meditative state of being connected to your universe, connected to your fellow human beings, and uh, realizing that everything's spiritual, mm-hmm. that everything's connected. And it helped me get unstuck from this happened to me, that happened to me, I want to blame them. Um, now I have my moments, but I am able to work through my steps again to get to that, that, pay, that place of, of joy, and where all the magic is. And hopefully I'll, you know, keep hold of that whenever those hard times do come, and they will come. Wow, that's, uh, that's so beautiful. I, I just I hear I hear in your voice, like, freedom, but what I really, really hear is just this, this embracing of your 
again, back to what you were saying before, back to your authenticity, back to those pieces and, you know, welcoming them, welcoming everything. And, and um, yeah, that's really, really incredible. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So did you, uh, I'm just curious, I, what kind of work did you do? You said EMDR, was that your main, and of course, you know, what you just described, but was that your main modality of, you know, trauma therapy or treatment? Was it EMDR? Well, I'm no stranger to therapy. <laughs> uh, immediately, well, I went into an intensive outpatient program when I was getting sober mm-hmm. and it was fantastic. It was the best thing I've ever done. And I met uh, the, my current counselor in that program oh. where we went every day. And it was kind of like, you know, just being inundated with all these simplistic thoughts, but things that um, you think you do, but you really don't. Or, or things that you do do that you shouldn't do. And, you know, just things like uh, taking accountability or uh, not being easily offended. And all of those play into why an alcoholic might pick up a drink. You know, like, oh, I blame my husband, so I'm going to drink. Or I blame my parents, so I'm going to drink. And you have to get rid of all that stuff. And I learned that in the intensive outpatient therapy. Met that counselor. After it was over, I said, I want you to be my person. I come see cognitive therapy every week. And I'm coming up in September on six years with him. Wow. <laughs> and because our work is not done yet, we, uh, we, there are current things going on right now that I still need him very much, but I understand I'm doing my work yeah. and I'm just happy. He's my conduit. He's my guide. And then, so he's cognitive. And then I have my EMDR therapist who's wonderful too. So I feel very grateful to have the two of them. And I'm one of those nerds that I really love therapy. No, I don't think it's being a nerd. I think, you know, and I often say this to my own clients and I say it to myself, (laughs) but, and that's that, you know, when we think about our lives as trauma survivors, we did not have, not only did we not have a voice, but there was no help. We desperately wanted help. And so I see this as now we have it. Now Mm -hmm. we have this person, this support group. If you don't have a therapist, maybe it's a close, safe friend. Um, But we have that. And that is worth, it's worth so much to give that gift to ourselves if we can. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to add that um, I also did some somatic experiencing things where throughout my life, I didn't even realize it, but I was a singer, I was in a choir, and I could, uh, you know, express myself through song. (laughs) And then um, now I currently do kickboxing. Uh I I did. I do too. I do too. (laughs) And I know people think I'm crazy because I'm yelling and grunting mm-hmm. and you know that uppercut i'm just making all kinds of noises but each one of those noises is me expressing and letting that trapped toxic energy out of me yeah that's that's so. wonderful that's wonderful yeah i remember the very first time i went um and you know they have that i don't know where if they have it where you go i guess they do that i don't know it's a sky and he's made of rubber do you have him too Oh, oh, like, yes, like a man or yeah, a mannequin. Yeah. That, uh-huh. yeah, a mannequin and you punch him and kick him and whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, at first, the first person that, and 
if, if my friend is listening, I didn't think of anybody for me, but I, I do have a dear friend who was terribly, terribly abused, terribly. Um, and I beat the shit out of her (laughs) and it felt so good. And when I came home, I said, you don't know what I did to your father. (laughs) She was like, thank "Thank you. Like, you're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it's a very powerful um, it's a way. Yeah. In fact, I wrote a post once and I went, kickboxing is a great thing for trauma survivors. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Bessel van der Kolk put it in his book even. And I thought, there it is. There's yeah. validation. Yeah. Kickboxing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's so great. So let's see what else I wanted to ask you. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, in your book book, you talk about uh, what what some adoptees talk or call uh, coming out of the fog. Do you want to talk about what that is coming out of the fog? Sure. Um, and I know it's very personal uh, from each person of what they may mean by that. Um, I always try to phrase it of, for me personally, coming out of the fog meant that uh, my suddenly my eyes were uncovered and I could see um, that my whole life has been colored by adoption. And or another friend of mine who wrote a book, um, she calls it like you wake up in the rain and you figure out you're naked. And it's just that moment where that chilling moment where everything just drops away and you see everything in front of you in vivid color. And that would be coming out of the fog. Now we're all on different parts of our journey on our path. No one's judging anyone else. Like for example, my brother, he never got on the path and I'm not judging him, but I do grieve that he was never able to see that his addiction was very much connected to his, his a score and his adoption trauma. So I think it's just, it behooves us all to do our interior work, to be able to be self-reflective and be aware just so we do have our eyes open. Yes. I, I recently wrote a post on Instagram and it, it kind of reminds me of coming out of the fog in this. I said, one of the most empowering embodied realizations I had, and I'm thinking about my twenties, my thirties even my forties was that after all, I was never broken. And all those years I was carrying the shame that something was wrong with me. You know, uh, I'm so anxious. Uh, This is wrong with me. That's wrong with me. And then you come to coming out of the fog. There was not, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know. Absolutely. I'm laughing because Nancy Verrier was just on a podcast recently. And she was asked, and she's the one that wrote the primal wound. She was asked, what would you tell adoptees if you could tell every single one? And she said, I would tell them that they were always okay. There was nothing, nothing ever defective or wrong with them. They were acting very normally in an abnormal situation. And I just thought, you know, I just really anchored that in my system that that was what the one thing she'd like to tell adoptees. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and again, the same thing goes for complex trauma survivors or, you know, both is yeah. that 
there's nothing wrong with you. It all makes sense. Yeah. Beautiful. So, you know, is there anything else that you want to share before we close uh, about your journey or, you know, maybe a message that you want to say? I think I would add that um, I really was so happy the way I ended my book of the reconciliation of not only did I meet my birth parents and didn't feel connected with them, there wasn't a lot of, you know, cosmic connection or feeling that I'm home. (laughs) And then also that I don't really feel that I'm of my adoptive parents. I'm not really home with them. So I've always kind of lived in this liminal space of where I don't belong there and I don't belong there, but I've reconciled that. And this is something that happened when I had to figure out who is God to me, who is my spiritual maker to me. And it was that I am me and I don't have to be of someone else. Um, I came here to have this human experience in the spirit that I am. And I wrote a poem, which is, I am me. Um, And so it's just the whole reconciliation or integration of myself that is just continuing all the time. And I'm very happy, very, very happy to be in the spot where I am. Yeah, you know, it it does really get better. And that's what I hear from you, uh, you know, talking from your book and all the experiences and the pain that you've gone through and just how it's sort of been a, like a letting go or a shedding or of your, of your, you know, these things that we've taken on that really weren't ours and coming into that, this is me, I am me. Uh And, and, and saying like, I believe I've been believing things that are untrue Mm. or this fear of mine is ungrounded. And so having accepting the invitation to look at it and say, is this really something to be fearful of? And if you can't say yes, then get rid of it and write yourself a new story. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work to get there as you could, you know, you can say, because trust me, I wanted to say that in my twenties and uh, cognitively I, it, I couldn't just do it by just saying it. Absolutely not. It takes a lot of hard work and a willingness to remain willing um, to grow into this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Emma, thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you, meeting you. And I will link your information in the show notes and your book if people are interested in reading your book. And again, like, thank you. Uh, you've made me very happy, Moni. Thank you so much for this space.